Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall on the West Coast Foreclosure Show, live from San Diego broadcasting. Uh, today is July 5th, 2018. And as always, uh, this show, Neil Garfield's show, is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, and the Garfield Firm. This show is specially brought to you because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Uh, To donate, all you need to do is donate on the blog, and any amount that you can afford to give is very much appreciated. Neil, very much appreciated. Now, today, I'm going to be breaking down the anatomy of a foreclosure case. And essentially, you can, you can break this into five separate sections, starting with what facts really matter. And a lot of what's involved with this is creating an, an evidentiary trail that you can use as the litigant. And whether you're on the non-judicial side as a plaintiff, or even for those of you in judicial foreclosure states where you're typically on the defense side, the critical thing out of the gate in your litigation is to pin down what facts matter. And as usual, these are, these are not something that are necessarily intuitive. Uh, there's, there's often a lot of, of digging and uh, evidentiary finding, discovery, that type of thing that needs to be done to get out the, the proper facts. Uh, the facts that really matter are those that show the provenance of the loan. And those are rarely going to be transparent on the documents. The much more typical scenario is is the one we see all the time where there are all kinds of broken assignments where the party extending money at the close who the borrower thinks they're going to be paying their money to is in fact no more than a stand in. It's almost like the loan is being brokered rather than you having an identifiable party who's actually responsible for collecting your payments. 
Of course, a lot of people do come by way of their loans through a mortgage broker at the front end, but everybody knows you end up with one financial lender who actually extends the money. The problem is, in these securitization cases, the party who you think you're paying, you aren't really paying. And then pretty much out of the gate, you have chain of title issues and money accounting issues that make it very difficult to verify who the real party in interest is. So some of the critical facts that matter in these inquiries, who is the real lender? Who is the party to whom you should be paying your money? Are they identified on documents that you can scrutinize and that you have signed off on? Uh, the second issue that, that comes up in these matters, you know, when you're, when you're breaking down, again, this, this idea of an anatomy of a foreclosure case, how do you stop fabricated evidence from being admitted into evidence? And this is, this is a piece that is often a challenge, especially on our side. Uh, the main way you stop fabricated evidence from being admitted into evidence is through proper pleading. And that is where you make, in your pleading, as few admissions as possible, particularly as to the claims made from the other side. And you question and allege issues with as many issues as possible, particularly related to the provenance of a loan or any right to collect money at all from the other side. Uh, the less you admit, the more you're in a position where you can actually successfully or effectively challenge any fabricated evidence. Absolutely never admit defaults. The default on the subject loan, so-called, is a critical element, whether you're in a non-judicial plaintiff's side or whether you're on the judicial side of the defense in a foreclosure lawsuit. Now, one of, one of the aspects uh, to the fabrication of evidence is it relates to forgery and robo-signing, and I'm going to be addressing that shortly in the, the third element of the anatomy of a foreclosure case. Uh, suffice to say for now, in terms of breaking this down, um, another way you, you stop fabricated evidence is by doing discovery. If your discovery promulgated on the other side is effective in showing that the whoever claims to be the servicer, whoever claims to be the originator, whoever claims to quote-unquote control or own or have the actual note at issue, all those issues, if you frame the right questions in discovery, and you get back, which you will often get back, non-responsive non responses, then, then you're in a situation where you can, you can readily deal with with, with the circumstances that need to be dealt with. Uh, uh, another way of putting that is 
when you are in the process of discovery, either responding to it when it was promulgated from the other side or putting it out yourself, you can directly go into evidentiary issues where you see either the possibility of fabrication or you already see that something may be fabricated. Uh, of course, one other way you could even bore down and drill down with even more detail on issues of fabricated evidence uh, would be deposing certain parties. If you have, let's say, an evidentiary trail in your case where documents have already been submitted, either in a judicial foreclosure context where the other side would be submitting them with their complaint oftentimes, that way they won't necessarily provide real evidence as attachments. A lot of times they'll just make bald assertions. In the non-judicial foreclosure context, you can attach documents that show that there's an evidentiary problem with what the other side has presented when they defend or could present I remember uh, the, the critical aspect to discovery is when to do it. And one of the, the troubling aspects to judicial procedure in California is how often our plaintiff's cases get dismissed through a demur. Problem with a demur is a demur is basically saying that we have no case. It's the institutional defendant coming forward and say, remember the standard on the demure is this. They say, look, even if your facts are true, even if your allegations as pled are actually what went down and what happened, we're saying, we're saying as the institutional defendant that you don't have a legal case and that it shouldn't and can't go forward legally anyway. Of course, this all reverts back to standing, and it's still the case in far too many of plaintiff's foreclosure cases in California that the, the judges will find and claim and, and, and buy into the institutional defense arguments that we don't have standing because we're, quote, unquote, not a party to the securitization process, and therefore all of our claims of broken chain of assignment or robo-signing or even forgeries are essentially um, treated as voidable rather than void. And the reason they're treated as voidable legally is the judicial analysis related to that is as follows. They're merely voidable because you, borrower, don't have the right to judicially challenge them. You're not a party to the legal process for challenging them. Uh, you're not a part of the securitization process. And all these players that you claim have bad documents, there's no remedy for you. The only remedy would be to the investors or to the players themselves. The institutional players could sue each other potentially and would have standing to do so based on the paperwork that they trade back and forth and the various assignments that go back and forth. 
and the other transfers of interest, transfers of money, uh, insurance considerations, on and on and on. Potentially all of those parties and players have standing in this kind of Kafkaesque universe in California where far too often judges will say the only party who can't get his or her legal redress in these cases is the borrower, who is, of course, critical to the loan to begin with. Without the borrower, there would have never been a subject loan. So it appears to be absurd on its face that same borrower has, quote-unquote, no standing to challenge all the craziness that goes on in the securitization uh, format and process. However, that is that is the case too, far too often. Now, of course, there are judges still, even now, who I think take the proper approach and will find that borrowers have standing to, to challenge this craziness. And they will look at um, something like ro- robo-signing and forgery, and when they see it, will say, yes, we're not going to tolerate that. Now, uh, on this point three, what is the difference between forgery and robo-signing? Remember, forgery is where a signature is imparted to a document, but the person signing was not authorized by the person essentially attesting to the document. So a forgery can happen, of course, and this would be a common criminal situation. Uh, Somebody has a checkbook, they lose their checkbook. Uh, Somebody takes their checkbook, they try to write a bunch of checks signing the person's name. Of course, in the real world, it's highly unlikely they could get ID, but let's say they somehow get a driver's license and even the real driver's license of the party and they happen to look like them, or they do some kind of fake driver's license that, that passes muster, maybe even with their own photo, that person goes in, they sign the check as a forged document, meaning they're not authorized by the, the account holder to tender a check, then they go in and they write a bunch of checks. So, of course, if you're, if you're writing checks to a local store or a local mart or a liquor store, that place may or may not do a lot of scrutiny of a driver's license or anything else for ID. And you might be able to, to get away with taking somebody's check in that context. So remember, for a forgery to happen, there must be a lack of permission on the person who could and would authorize the signature. So it's not a forgery if, if you give permission to someone else to sign on your behalf. Now, ideally, you would have that kind of agreement in writing, but even if it's an oral agreement, that's a valid agreement uh, unless and until there's a dispute and, you know, let's say you call somebody, they need you to sign a document, and then you go in and you sign a document because they said you could. If your oral understanding that you could sign the document from then was clear and transparent, that is still valid. However, if it relates to land or title, then there is a statute of frauds component 
and there would be an expectation of a writing to confirm your ability to sign on their behalf. However, it's very important, the legal you know, kind of framework for this, it needs to be understood that forgery only happens where the signer doesn't have permission from, from that person or that entity on whose behalf he is signing or she is signing. Now, robo-signing is categorically different because what happens with robo-signing, robo-signing is you have an institutional player in the vast majority of situations. And it's not that robo-signing is unique to mortgage documents, but this is the sort of paradigmatic place where we see this. And, of course, it's a huge issue in our cases, a huge issue in foreclosure cases in general. And robo-signing, as I think many of the listeners know, is where you've got a signer. They're supposed to be attesting to individually review a given mortgage document. And under declaration and adaptation and affidavit rules, you're supposed to individually review the document. You're supposed to be in some kind of capacity, ideally professional, where you review those documents, having been trained to do so, you know what you're looking for, you know what bona fides you're checking checking off on, and if you if you don't have those bona fides in front of you, if you're not able to do the confirmation that the document related to assign, assignments of interest in land, if you don't have the bona fides and you haven't reviewed the documents that confirm what you're signing to is valid, you're not supposed to sign that document. Now, in the real world, of course, if you're robo-signing, the numbers are ridiculous. You could be signing thousands of documents a day. I mean, that's the robo-signing world. So you could be literally, if you're using some kind of stamp signature, which can be legal as well under certain circumstances, you could literally just be doing this conveyor belt style. I mean, you could be either a wet signature, you know, every, I don't know, could you do 10, 20 documents in a minute? I don't know. I'm not an expert. But if you're doing this conveyor belt style, you could certainly do a lot. And you literally would have no time to even read what's in front of you, half less scrutinize it, half less verify its authenticity. Now, what should happen in a Roma signing context is that, your review of the document should just be considered invalid because when you attest to the truth of the document therein, when you've reviewed it before signing it, you as the attestator, tester as it were, you're supposed to have individual knowledge and you're supposed to have professional capacity to, to be essentially empowered to do faithfully and, and, and lawfully and reliably the scrutiny of the document at issue. And if you're just blowing through like literally dozens of dozens of documents, uh, one after the other in some, you know, 20, 30 minute time frame, of course you can't be really reading them and scrutinizing them properly. Uh, so that's robo-signing. You would think that that would create a void document. But again, what happens in so many of these cases in California is the judges will look at them and they'll, they'll cite some of the, the recent precedent case law, which, you know, is, let's say going back two to three years, and 
whatever case they're citing, it's out there. There are too many out there now. And I'm not saying that there aren't cases on our side. Yes, there are cases on the borrower side. And yes, we try to use them all the time. However, cases on the other side say, and judges will often follow them, well, you borrower, you really don't have standing to talk about this robo-signing issue. Now, if one of the institutional players who has another institutional player on the other side to the given document, if they want to challenge it, yes, maybe there's an issue of voidness then because it could be void as to them because of the robo-signing. However, you borrower, you don't even have standing to challenge this. So it's merely voidable as to you, and that's, uh, that's a case killer. If it's merely voidable as to the party claiming void, then it means that the document can potentially be fixed. But again, the big problem with that analysis is that we're not, the borrower is not in a position to challenge that. So even if they could go back and say, yes, this needs to be fixed and give an opportunity for it to be fixed with the robo-signer, that's not even at play. The minute it's said that it's merely voidable in these cases, the companion finding is that the borrower doesn't even have standing to have these issues addressed. So point four, death of the salesman. What happens when the lender on the note and deed of trust is no longer in business? Now, this is another, I could almost call it scary situation, disturbing situation. It certainly is. And by the way, these point, point three and point four that I'm not now discussing I've seen these cases shot down literally in front of me at the Ninth Circuit in the last two years when my foreclosure case was on the docket with several other foreclosure cases. And literally while I was in, in line, as it were, in court waiting for my case to be called, the, uh, that's how long this president has been here. We're talking about a, a year and a half now where – difference between forgery and robo-signing, even putting that aside, where robo-signing is said to be merely voidable as to the borrower. So the borrower has no standing to challenge it. Uh, I've also seen scenarios where the note and deed of trust, the, the, the party in interest, so to speak, the institutional party, is no longer in business. You think that that would would kill any assignments that were made, particularly where you see, and this is not that uncommon, where the party that was literally no longer in business, and sometimes you'll see kind of an associated one where they, they no longer have a valid registration for service or, or anything else, frankly, with the California Secretary of State. But let's just stick with the scenario where they're no longer in business. Even where they're no longer in business, due to bankruptcy, due to... Due to, to uh, to being liquidated in bankruptcy, uh, due to being having their entire name and, and, and legal interest uh, sold away and assigned to another party. No matter what kinds of issues you see, when that entity later shows up and does an assignment, after the fact, we could be talking months, we could be talking years after her dissolution, 
you would think not just common sense, but legal sense would tell you that that creates a void transaction. How, how can a party be a contract to a party where they don't even exist anymore? And again, as disturbing as it sounds, what I have seen is that some judges, including on appeals in the Ninth Circuit, have looked at that and said, well, that just creates a merely voidable situation, and you borrower can't challenge that. It doesn't create a void assignment. It creates a merely voidable one. And as to the borrower, you can't challenge that. Now, if you were one of the investors who put a lot of money into a pooling and servicing agreement so many years ago, well, hypothetically, you could challenge. Maybe uh, it could be treated as void with you as the litigator challenging that assignment However, as to the borrower, it's merely voidable. Uh, I think there are definitely judges in California who will find that type of disconnect void. A variation on that is where there's not proper registration with the Secretary of State. That could be because LLC or corporate fees haven't been paid. That could be because they've dissolved, but there's not like a legal dissolution that's taken place yet. And that could be because they don't have a current uh, place of service to take service of process. I mean, that's a regular, that's a major irregularity, and you are out of compliance with California Secretary of State rules if you're a business entity who doesn't have a proper service address. So that's a place where you still see the merely voidable and I think between that scenario and where the entity is literally no longer in business, granted the, the case I'm just citing where you're out of compliance with the Secretary of State, I don't think that's right either. I think that should create a void transaction, and some judges will so find. What they typically do is come back to merely voidable, and it's like they'll look at the transaction, they'll look at the assignment, and, and you'll say, look, this entity hasn't been in compliance for two years. Now they go even a year after that and try to assign interest related to my loan. What's going on here? Or we could even put it the original financial transaction, rather even calling it my loan or a loan. And the judges will, will sometimes void that. Uh, more often these days, they'll say it's merely voidable. Uh, where the entity is no longer in business, if they come back three years later and are in a signed assignment, I'd like to say that, you know, 99 times out of 100 or even 100 out of 100, judges will look at that and say, no way, we're not letting that through. That's void. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, unfortunately. Um, last point to cover today is how do you persuade the judge that you are Seeking the creditor, not a free house. I mean, this is a big one. Um, if you've done efforts to have the loan modified, notwithstanding being frustrated about being able to identify who your real lender is, or if you did make payments for some period of time before the loan uh, became so apparently to you irregular and illegal, um, or at least where there weren't problems with the lender for two or three years. As much as you can show you did make payments before there were problems, as much as you can show that 
you've tried to be in communication with the lender servicer at some point in the past before there were problems, that can help, and that often will help with getting around this idea that you're looking for a free house. Uh, and if you can focus the judge on, I just want to make sure I'm paying the right party, a lot of judges will roll their eyes. But a lot of judges will roll their eyes, but some will not. So we are coming up to the end of our program today. Uh, Neil will be back next week. And I uh, will join all of you in a broadcast to come. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.